0: I should turn to the book of Job. For the next two, not consecutive weeks, but the next two studies, we're going to be digging into the the book of Job. Scott has graciously allowed me two whole weeks to cover this little bitty book, tongue-in-cheek there. Um, And there, there could be a number of ways to cover this book in this vast amount of time, but The way I've looked at this and prayed through this and the way I believe that God has has led me to to break this down is to look at the story of Job from the context of the two different conversations or the two different contexts of conversations. The first one that we're going to look at tonight is the context of the conversations between Job's friends and Job and then on the... I believe it's the 6th of November, not next week, but the week after that. Then we're going to look at the context of the conversations between the creator God and Job. So we're going to break it up that way. So tonight we're just going to look at uh, basically about 37 chapters. So put your seatbelts on, get your running shoes on, here we go. Now, to, just in way of introduction, Job is the first of the books in the Old Testament that are referred to as wisdom books. These books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, record no incredible events, no storyline, no history of the workings of God with his people and, and through his people. These books do not present new laws from God to his people as do the first five books of the Old Testament. However, these five books, as we look through and dig through these we can glean the wisdom that God has designed for us to read, to gnaw on, to chew, to ruminate, to get all the goody wisdom that God wants us to have out of these five books. And we can do that. So that's what we're gonna begin to do tonight. Through, um, again, through digging through this, uh, looking at the two weeks, we're gonna look at the conversations. Uh, But I wanna start with, a couple of conversations that Job did not even know about. He was not even aware of two other conversations. So I want, to, I want to do that just as way of introduction tonight. So turn to Job chapter 1. And in the first five verses, we are introduced to Job. Beginning in verse 1. God's word said, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of his day, and they would spend, I'm sorry, he was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and that's referring to on his birthday. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So we get a picture of, of a man that, that walks in an upright manner with his creator So he's walking with God, but apparently he's he's a God-honoring husband and he's a a God-honoring daddy because he offers sacrifices just in case his children may have messed up. So he's concerned with his family and he's walking with God. Now next, beginning in verse 6, we're taken to the throne room of God where God addresses Satan. In verse 6, it says, now there was a day... When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, and a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hand and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. He will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now in verse seven, we see that Satan had been going back and forth across the face of the earth and and many indications and and some that I've read say that basically Satan was saying, I was looking around, I was prowling around looking for someone to devour. That's what he did, okay? And then God, then in verse eight, brags on Job. Now this is a huge point to consider. We're gonna come back to it later. I'm not not gonna really land on it right now. But just remember, God bragged on Job. He said, if you considered my man, he's a righteous man. Okay, so then, Satan is given permission by God to afflict Job by taking away all of his possessions. And in a matter of, it seems like a day, okay? In fact, it it says there was a day in verse 13 that everything goes away. So let's look in verse 13 of Job chapter one. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another man and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another And said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. Now I think if this were me at this point, I'd lock the door. I don't want any more news. There better not be another servant come through the the door of my tent and say, I got news. That's not what happened. In verse 18, while yet... This servant was speaking. There came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people and they are dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. Put yourself in the context of where Job is at this point. In a matter of, seems really not, not even just the day, but a few minutes because as one servant came in and finished, another one came in, and another one came in, and another one came in. What, what would your response be to something like that? You know, I, I can't even imagine what that would be like. But that's where Job is. And let's see what he, let's see what happens. Verse twenty. Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head. Those two things I can understand. But no. I, I'd, I'd be tearing up all kinds of stuff. And then he fell on the ground and worshiped. Man. that that, that convi- I don't know if I could do that. And the conviction, as I read through that, and I'm, I'm really trying to put myself into the context of that, I was like, would I, would I fall on my face and worship? I hope I would. I don't know. But Job did. And that's the important point tonight. Let's let's, let's look at what Job did. And Job said in verse 21, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He worshiped in the midst of all of this. Now moving into chapter two, beginning in verse one. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come, Satan said to the, answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Does that sound familiar? It's basically the same thing that God said in the first conversation. Again, he's bragging on Job, but he adds a little addendum on this one. And he says, he still holds fast his integrity although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hands, only spare his life. Again, Satan is is released and given permission to afflict Job, now we've we've heard Pastor Ben say numerous times that Satan cannot scratch his behind without God's permission. And, and we see that here. The first time he says, you can, you can take away his things, but you can't touch the man. He put limits on what Satan could do. The second conversation said, you can touch him, but you can't kill him. Okay, now that sounds like a reasonable condition. As I was reading through this, I, I was reminded of, of uh, a series of videos that we had when our boys were little of the Aladdin movies, the Disney movies of Aladdin. In the second one, the, the evil genie Jafar is shooting lightning bolts at the little parrot, Yago. And he was doing that because Yago had turned away from Jafar. He was no longer Jafar's you know, second in command whatever. And he had turned over and he had, he had, he, had become, he had befriended Aladdin. And so Jafar is shooting lightning bolts at at Yago, and Yago reminds him, hey, but as a genie, you can't kill me. And Jafar says, you'll be amazed at what you can live through. You know, I mean, that's a cartoon version of really what's happened here. You know, what happened next is, is something that's very, very difficult to even Um, to even consider because in in the next in in the next few verses satan afflicts job with boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet and he's sitting in the ashes which i I think properly translates he's in the city dump because the ashes were, were outside the city limits and when they dumped everything so that's where he was sitting so he's gone from the most prosperous, the most wealthy, probably the most influential man in the East, the scripture says, to someone sitting in the city dump covered with boils. Uh, I was explaining to a young person this afternoon, we're kind of talking about this and a question had come up. So I was talking and she's like, well, what is a boil? And I said, well, and at the time she had, you know, this, there was a pimple <laughs> right here. Um, I was like, well, you know what pimples are, yeah. I said, well, multiply that. I said, have you ever had one that hurt, that was just sore? And she's like, yeah. I said, multiply that by maybe 100. I said, they're extremely painful. I said, I've never had one. I've talked to people that have had them. And Job just didn't have one. He had them all over. And the only comfort that he had was to take a broken piece of pottery and sit there and scrape the boils, And physicians will lance a boil and try to get the infection out. So that's basically what Job was doing. He was cutting and scraping and, and when you stop and think about it, he was sitting there and he was just a great big pile of bloody, pussy, open wounds. That's nasty to even consider, but that's where he was and that's what was going on. I'm gonna chase a little rabbit here. Often, Job's wife gets a really bad rap here because she makes a statement in verse 9 of chapter 2. His wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, Job's wife was not speaking as a a godly woman of integrity here. But let's consider where she was. From a human perspective, she had lost everything that Job had, plus she was watching her man, her provider, her protector, the man that God gave her in marriage just sitting there covered with boils. She was watching his suffering, not what they not just what they had lost. So in her human condition, she came to a place where In her mind, she was thinking it would be better for you just to die than to continue to suffer. Now, again, that wasn't a God-honoring statement, but I think from a human condition, we could understand maybe where she was a little bit. Understandably sad, but now back to the story. Next comes Job's three friends. And we're gonna look at this situation to see the conversations unfold between Job and his three friends. First of all, they approached him if we're looking in, in, in chapter two, verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all of this evil that had come upon him, they came together, each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Na, Na, Naamathite—it's not easy to say. And they made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort him. Keep that phrase in mind. They made an appointment. They got together and said, our friend is in misery. Let's go and show him sympathy and let's comfort him. A noble thought, a noble gesture. So they head out. When they saw him from the distance in verse 12, they did not recognize him. Why didn't they recognize him? Because what? Yeah, the boils. they they'd never seen him sit in the city dump they'd never seen him covered with boils cutting and scraping and covered with blood and pus i mean it's just it was a nasty sight so yeah they didn't recognize him they finally figured out what it was who he was it said they raised their voices and wept and they tore their robes and they sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven in other words they were throwing dirt in the air and they were screaming at the condition of their friend and then they sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, but they saw that his suffering was very great. Now, 1981, my dad was killed in an accident, and Kendra and I went from Commerce for Campbell, where we were living, went to Fort Stockton, and the second day that we were there, um, was you know, and it was an outpouring of love from First Baptist Church, Fort Stockton, and they were bringing food, and people were coming to visit, and. And after about six hours of people coming in and shaking my hand and hugging me and patting me on the back and and saying whatever they wanted to say, you know, in comfort, I'd had it up to here. I'd had enough of people. So I told Kendra I was going out back. So I went out in the backyard and sat down behind the boat that my dad had back there. I just had a, a five-gallon bucket and I just sat there. Um, and a good friend of mine, Rick, had come over from Crane. I guess he came into the house, asked where it was, and they directed him outside. He came out. First thing he did, he just dropped on his knees next to me and he hugged me. And we cried for a couple of minutes, five, 10 minutes. Then he pulled up a bucket and he just sat there. He didn't say another word for about an hour. And that was comforting. You know, his presence being there and not saying anything for an hour, he just knew that's what I needed. And I was comforted in that. I think if Rick had sat there for seven days and seven nights, I'd have picked up one of the oars and hit him with it. You know, um, you know Job's friend sitting there for seven days and seven nights was no comfort to Job. And it says, no one spoke a word to him. Now, my next statement is simply conjecture because we're not told in scripture. But I wonder if Job's friends may have spoken to each other during that seven days and seven nights, put their heads together and trying to figure out, you know, what do we say to this guy? What, What was his sin? We've got to figure out what his sin was so we can help him repent from that so that he won't be suffering anymore. That may have been going on. We don't know. But it makes sense that it might have. But nonetheless, they didn't say anything to him. Now, what was their purpose? What was the phrase they used? What were, why were they going to see Job in their initial statement? What were they going to do? They said they wanted to do two things. Huh? Say it again, I can't hear. They were going to sympathize with him. And what else were they going to do? They were going to comfort him. <laughs> So for seven days and seven nights they didn't do anything. So, here they are sitting, and then Job speaks. Job spends time lamenting his own life, in chapter three. In verse twenty-five he says, "The thing that I fear comes upon me, for what I dread and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet." I have no rest, but trouble comes. Now, this is is a statement I believe that there's more trouble coming, okay? He's lost all of his livestock. He's lost all of his servants. He's lost all of his children. He's lost his house. He's lost his standing in the community. He's sitting in the city dump. What other trouble could come? Well, it's about to unfold because his friends are about to open their mouth. Eliphaz the Temanite speaks first. And he spends time trying to convince convince Job that it is his own sin that led him to his current situation. And and Eliphaz is, his his presentation here is not really heated, but it's pointed. You know, there's things you need to consider, Job. And in chapter five, verse two, Eliphaz says, surely vexation kills the fool and jealousy slays the simple. And that kind of sums up what what Eliphaz says here. He's saying, you got problems, dude, and you got to repent. You got to turn away from that. In chapter six, Job responds to his friend. Notice, first of all, though, Job doesn't interrupt. He let Eliphaz Eliphaz, have his whole say. When Eliphaz finished his statement, then Job responded. Job didn't do what so many of us do. Um, When someone is speaking something that we know is not true, we interrupt. And at least in Texas and probably most of the South, we interrupt with with a, a, it's a word that we've come up with, it's actually two words put together, and it's, yippet. You know, we, we listen to him speak. And then we're like, yippet. This is the truth. And we interrupt and we jump in. And we don't give the other person full say. Job didn't do that. You now, Job listened to everything Eliphaz had to say. He refrains from interrupting and maybe smacking him upside the head. He, he refrains from all of that. But his response, and I'll paraphrase his response rather than reading all the, all the, the, the scriptures because we ain't got time tonight. To paraphrase his response, it's basically this. Eliphaz, you came to advise me, to counsel me and to comfort me, yet you do not even know the depth of my condition. You do not see the entire picture. You only have a snapshot of what you think the problem is. And therefore, you're trying to fix what is wrong without knowing where the real issue is. And that's basically Job's response to Eliphaz. Now, question comes to mind, have you ever been in that situation? Have you been in the situation where you were the the one hurting and someone came and tried to advise you and what they were saying was completely off base? I mean, it wasn't even in the same galaxy. They had good intentions, but what they said was just didn't make sense. You may have been in that situation. You may have been on the other side of that situation where you're going to someone and you're wanting to comfort them and you're saying things to them that you think would comfort them and then somewhere in the middle of that, you realize, I don't have a clue what's going on here. Now, that situation for the person who's hurting, the the, the ill-advised counselor is going to create more pain for the person that's hurting. And then the ill-advised counselor is simply gonna be embarrassed because they don't know what's going on. So when, when you're going to help someone, if you're in that situation where you're going to help someone, the first thing you need to do is really assess where they are. And the first thing you need to do is ask questions. Ask questions. You don't just walk in and say, here's your problem. And that's what Eliphaz did. To rightly assess, you really have to ask questions and find out where they are and what's going on and listen. And then there might be some God-given direction that's presented. As I'm looking around, I'm seeing a number of people that that I know get involved in counseling in different different times and different places. And I do, um, pretty much on a daily basis, and... You know, that's the first thing you gotta do. You gotta ask questions. You gotta know where they're at. You can't just look at someone and say, okay, I know what your problem is and here it is. Because if you don't know, you know, you gotta meet them first, then you can treat. You know, that's one of the old sayings. You meet, meet, and then treat. And Job's friends didn't do this. They didn't come in and ask questions. They just came in and started giving advice. So Job answers his first friend. Then Bildad steps up in chapter eight. Even though Job answered Eliphaz, and he really appears to have answered rightly, Bildad does the typical angry respondent thing, and he ramps up his passion. He just takes it up a notch. You know, Job didn't listen to Eliphaz, so Bildad, and I'm I'm just gonna take it up a notch. You're gonna listen to me. And that's what he does. He points out the all too typical Sunday morning, Sunday school answer. Repent and God will restore you. Here, Bildad utters the man-made theology that they have all tended to sit in. God never spoke it. We don't see anywhere in scripture where God said this, but they had created this in their own minds. And it's that man-made theology that I I refer to as armwap, being that's another another good word for you, A-R-M-W-A-P. A righteous man will always prosper. And you don't have to look very far as you're clicking. Through, well, you don't click through channels anymore as you surf through channels with a button. I just, I just told my age, so I don't care. I'm old. Um, so you're, you're surfing through channels and you, and you don't have to go very far before you see that very theology being played out as truth time after time after time after time after time. If you're, if you're righteous, if you walk with God, you'll prosper. The prosperity gospel is all over the airways. It's not over—not not just over the airways. It's in pulpits all over the place in, in our society. Yes, sir. Right mhm yeah yeah and yeah, and if we and if we're not careful if, if our child falls down and skins a knee, if we're not careful for the way, what we talk to him about and how we comfort him, we can slip into that because we're inundated with it all the time. We've got to be so very careful with, with how we present that. Now, this is not only just bad theology. It's wrong theology because God never said, if you're righteous, I'll prosper you. He did say, if we go back to the Deuteronomy study last March, whenever it was, God promises to bless, okay? But as we, as we looked through that that night, Consider that the blessing that God pours into you may be poverty. You ever thought about poverty being a blessing? Could be. Have you ever thought about prosperity being a curse? Could be. So it's not about the things or what's going on, but it's about that relationship that God pours in. That's the blessing. And, and, And that's what God wants people to understand, but Job's friends didn't get that. Bildad speaks really kind of the the summation in in chapter eight, verse 20. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. In other words, Bildad's saying, God wants you to be happy. (laughs) We see that a lot. We hear that a lot. God just wants you to be happy. And that's what he says. Job answers Bildad in chapters 9 and 10, and he doesn't even answer the initial accusation that Job was talking too much. Because that's what Bildad said first. You just talk too much. He didn't even address that. But he addresses, he does acknowledge Bildad's point that God never perverts judgment. In chapter 9, verse 2, Job says, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be right before God? Job asks a good question. Now, some might some look at that question and think, man, that's a harsh and passionate complaint against God's strict nature. It's not. Job's statement there literally, I believe it's a humble confession of sin that the nature of man, Job included, is sinfulness. And that if indeed God were to deal with us justly, we would all be undone. What Job's saying. And in chapter 10, Job, in response to not having any power to change things according to God's sovereignty, he revisits his earlier complaints and vents them once again in verse 10, chapter 10, verse 1. He says, I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. In other words, he said, I won't say what I want to say. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. Next, Zophar comes in, the third friend. Thus far we heard from Eliphaz, who was a little pointed and critical with Job. Then Bildad ramps up his passion, and he's even more harsh with Job. Now, Zophar comes in, and he jumps with both feet right in the middle of Job. He's pouncing, trouncing, and pounding all over Job. In in chapter 11, verse 1, Zophar the said, answered and said, should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men and when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, My doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you. Next, Zophar really speaks truth about God in verse 7. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? Now, while so far reveals some very good things about God, some truths about God and His glory and greatness, concerning man and his folly, doesn't really apply to Job's situation. So it's truth spoken, but it's really not applicable. So Job really didn't find any encouragement in that. Again, in verse thirteen, verse thirteen through twenty, so far simply encourages Job to come on and be in a better mood. Verse thirteen. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward God, him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish and you will secure. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. Your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. And you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take your rest in security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many, many will court your favor. So he's saying, just get happy. It'll be okay. Just smile. But then in verse twenty, he says, "But the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them, and their hope is to breathe their last." So he's basically saying, if you don't repent, you're going to die. And that's what you deserve. Again, in chapter 12, Job answers his friends and answers him quite harshly. In verse 1 of chapter 12, Job answered and said, no doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. He's basically saying, you guys have all the knowledge, don't you? You think you got it all together? He goes on to say, but I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? Basically tells them that they apparently think that the wisdom begins and ends with them, and they are quite conceited and self-important men. And he's basically saying, You're no help. In verses 12 through 25, Job speaks a wonderful discourse about the wisdom and sovereign power of the Almighty God. Then in chapter 13, Job tells his friends exactly what he thinks of them. It's unvarnished truth. It's heatedly delivered, but it's delivered nonetheless. In verse one of chapter 13, he said, Behold, my eyes have seen all of this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies, Worthless physicians are you all. These guys came to to comfort and sympathize. And what they did was dash him. They beat him up. They they you know, if they if they had the, the big family bible, they took it and just whipped him with it. You know. Didn't help. In verses thirteen through twenty-two of chapter 13 Job pleads for his friends and all the company around him to simply listen to him and let him have him say uninterrupted he basically takes a hard strong hold on his integrity as if he were never willing to let it go in the first place when his his friends were trying to rip it away from him from his well-meaning friends now Rather than go through all of this again, these discourses continue in this line until the end of chapter 31. We're not gonna go through each one of those. Eliphaz speaks again in chapter 15, more heated toward Job. The first time he came in, he was just a little pointed with Job. Now he's, he's ramping up. So he's getting into that argumentative mode. So he ramps up against Job. <clears throat> Job answer him, answers him in chapter 16 and 17. Then Bildad gets up and he speaks again there's no change in his position. It's only more heated. So he ramps up even more. In chapter 18, and again, Job answers in chapter 19. Then Zophar attacks Job again in chapter 20, and Job answers in chapter 21. In chapter 22, Eliphaz gets up for the third time and approaches him, and this time he jumps, and even though he speaks truth about God, it is misapplied to, God, to Job's situation. It's not at all fitting the situation. So again, it's truth, but it's truth that's not applicable. Job again answers Eliphaz in chapters 23 and 24. Again, Bildad then gets up in chapter 25. And here Bildad speaks to God's dominion and he does not continue to attack Job at this point. And in fact, he spoke of the points that he and Job actually agreed on. That God is sovereign and God is wise and God is holy and God is righteous. And they, they agreed on that. And it, it's almost a peaceful ending between Job and, and, and um, Bildad here, but it's not quite. Because basically Job says, yeah, we agree on this, but it's too little too late. What you've said still doesn't apply. Job launches into a five-chapter response of continuing his position, his friends not helping, even, even though he found some lighthearted bantering with Bildad in chapter 26, saying, yeah, we agree on this, but you know. And I, he may have even questioned Bildad's sincerity in what he was saying. You know, it may have been, and you know, as you look at that, there, there's almost a sense of Bildad doesn't know what to say next, because he, he, he's understanding, okay, I really don't understand the situation, so I'm gonna try to say something. And Job says, you know, that's fine, but it doesn't hurt. It doesn't help. So again, Job returns to his pain and misery. So far, doesn't speak this this round. So far, it just remains silent. You know, and again, we don't know exactly what happened. He may have just held, it threw his hands up, and just walked away, which is what happens many times if you're in, an, in a heated argument and there, there's, no, there's no movement anywhere. Somebody's finally just going to say, fine, and walk off. Zophar may have done it. We don't know what he did, but he doesn't speak again. But then we hear a new voice in chapter 32. Elihu, a younger man, who had been sitting silent Apparently in the crowd, apparently there's, there, there may be quite a crowd observing all of this. But he's on the sidelines listening to the friends, listening to the elders. The older men speak to an older man, Job. And Elihu has up to this point remained silent, hoping that these older men could end this dispute in the right way and find the answer that they're trying to, they're, they're trying to lead Job into. But rather, their angst just continues to grow and escalate, get higher and higher and higher. Elihu is even hoping for Job to settle his angst against God himself because, you know, he's despairing of his life even at this point. Elihu first speaks to Job. And he says of Job that he had not spoken so reverently toward God. And here's a younger man speaking to an older man saying, you had not been so reverent. Need to rethink what you've said. Now, in, in our culture, a younger man speaking to an older man in that way, it's, it's still not as cool, but it's not quite what it was in those days. Um, and having... Having come back from, from Kazakhstan last month, um, I experienced something out in the village with this um, people group that, that, that Jake is, is really pouring his life into and that we got to meet. And in this, in this setting, when I walked in, the man, Joseph, that Jake and Stephanie and their kids always stay with and we stayed with in their home, Joseph is 56 years old. His, his daddy is, his father, is the elder of, of the villages and one of the renowned teachers in the area. So Joseph is 56. He's a well-known man in the community. He's a respected man in the community. But when we first got there, he asked Jake how old I was. And he found out I was 57. So I was a year older than Joseph. So I got the position of honor. And it looks like this. When I walked in the room, everybody stood up. Freaked me out the first time. And nobody sat down until I did. And I was ushered to the seat of honor, which depending on where the the room was set up, but like in the kitchen, it was the chair furthest away from the door and furthest away from any of the utensils that you might use in cooking because I was not allowed to do that. I, I made a major faux pas after, you know, during breakfast one morning, it was just me and John Hicks and, and um, Brad Galley and Aaron was in there. Stephanie walked in. About the time I got up and I was pouring some water out of a, out, out of a, uh, a jug of water, because I wanted some more water. Joseph's wife, her name's Kulsoon, walked in and she very gently just put her hand on the back of my hand and eased it over to the counter so that I could set it down. Stephanie walked in she said, Uncle Mo." did you just pour some water in your glass? I said, yes, I did. And she said, go sit down, please. And don't ever do that again. You do it a second time, it's a major insult to Cool soon because she's not providing for you. For the rest of the week, my glass never got more than half empty because she was saying if it got half she was pouring me some more water. You know, But that's the picture of really of where this culture is. Older men are revered. And for a younger man to step up and say, You were not so reverent to God. That's a a major break of protocol in that area. But he was right in saying that. Job had been irreverent on several points and things that he had said. He also pointed out that Job had worked feverishly to justify his own righteousness rather than simply falling on the righteousness of God, which is a lesson for us all today. We need to be doing that. In Job 32, verse 2, Elihu, the son of Barashel, the Buzite, the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. So Elihu speaks, and then he speaks to Job's friends. He said that they had found no answer, and yet they continued to condemn Job and his actions. They judged him as hypocritical, a vile and wicked man and would not take back what they had said against Job even though Job had proven them wrong each time. They never said, and you know what, you're right, we, we misstepped, we, we're out of line. They never said that. They just continued to ramp up their anger. Both parties were wrong in their arguments and here Elihu takes neither part but he addresses the wrong on both sides. Elihu becomes a good Example of a peacemaker and what he says. He addresses the wrong on both sides. The younger man is the one who stands up for the right, for God's name, for God's righteousness, and he speaks it very clearly to all involved. Now, this was a huge argument. I mean, look at the book of Job, and that's, it's the vast majority of the book is this argument between these three men and Job. Elihu was the moderator or the mediator in this dispute. One commentator made the statement here that Elihu and those in our lives and around us, in fact, we need to model after Elihu. If we plan to be a moderator or a mediator in a dispute of some sort, we must, first of all, we have to be impartial in our judgments on both sides. Elihu showed that quality. We cannot reject what is true and good on both sides or either side or the other just for the sake of the truth regardless of how ugly the dispute has gotten. We can't simply let truth slide away. We have to to stand for truth. We cannot defend what is wrong for the sake of what is true and good. We also have to learn to be able to discern between what is good and evil, between what is holy and what is sin. Elihu and continues his discourse with Job and then with Job's friends until the end of chapter 37. And he spoke eloquently of God's design, his power, and his sovereignty. Now to recap the story up to this point, got a couple of minutes, I'm doing good. God conversed with Satan in heaven on two different occasions. Job did not know about those conversations. Satan challenged God's choice of Job being a righteous man Then Job lost everything except for his life and his wife. Everything else was gone. Job's friends came to encourage him with their own man-made theology that if he repents, he will prosper. Job emphasized that he was righteous, that his sin had not brought him to this place. Now focus on this. This is the part that got me right between the eyes. You know, I've I've thought all along. You know, and I've heard the stories of Job taught, and I've heard the fact that it was not his sin that led him to this condition. But I never heard it said quite this pointedly. But what I'm about to say: Job suffered because of his righteousness. It wasn't a sin. It was because of his righteousness. Remember in in the beginning tonight, I said that God bragged on Job. Going back to, to Job chapter one, verse eight. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Again, that is a huge point to consider. Everything that Job experienced He lost all of his livestock. He lost all of his servants. All Ten of his children were killed. He had moved to the city dump because there was nothing left. He was covered with boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet because he was righteous. Does that make anybody cringe a little bit? Is that... Go against what maybe you've thought up to this point or maybe there's something in each of us that we think, well, you know, if I walk rightly with God, then things are gonna be good. Things are gonna be okay. And we may not say it as blatantly as we hear in other places that God just wants you to be happy. But in our lives, we may actually walk that way. When something bad happens, we think, ooh, what did I do wrong? Well, look in the New Testament. What did Jesus promise us about suffering? What did he say? When? when? Yeah, when you suffer. And he said, you will suffer for my name's sake. Goes right along with Job's story here. Job suffered because of his righteous stand before God. God knew what Job's heart was. God knew in his sovereignty what the outcome would be. And Job suffered. That's as far as we can get tonight. It's a troubling statement in in a very real way. But we can glean, I think, three points from Job uh, for tonight. And then for next week, we're going to look at this more more specifically. One, we often suffer. And according to, to Christ, we will suffer. As Christy said, it's not if you suffer, it's when you suffer. When, because we will. So we often suffer. That's a fact promised by Jesus. Sometimes, second point is, sometimes we understand. Sometimes we don't. Job never understood those, he never knew about those conversations between God and Satan. In, in, in the first of the, of the book, we never see God revealing to, to Job, this is what went on. Let me tell you about these conversations. It's not revealed in scriptures that was ever said. And in my heart, I believe that even today, Job didn't know about those conversations. You know why? It wasn't important. It wasn't important for Job to understand. What was important was Job worshiped. And we're going to see that next week or in the next study as well in a couple of weeks. So sometimes we understand, but not always. However, God does promise peace. It goes beyond understanding. Philippians 4, 7 says, the peace of God which go, that surpasses all understanding like a sentinel will guard your hearts and your thoughts in Christ Jesus. In the midst of our suffering, and if we understood what our suffering was, we might think, okay, I can kind of see where this is. What God promises is a peace that surpasses that understanding. Even if you understood the peace that God provides is greater than what that understanding would give. So he promises a peace The third point, and this is where we're going to end tonight and we're going to take up the next time. Number three is you can always trust God. The story of Job is a study of trust. When faced with calamity and troubles and trials and illness, death in the family, how should we, as those who profess, a walking, living, faithing, talking, believing relationship with God through Jesus Christ, how should we respond to calamity? How should we respond to distress? How should we respond to trials? We should respond the same way, in peace, not happiness, in worship, not contentment, certainly not satisfaction. We should do the same thing that Job did. We should worship. Come so, one of the first, the first part of this book and these conversations, Job came out of that still with that understanding and he is going to and he's about to engage a conversation with God that he's going to learn even more about the creator God and we'll look at that next time. And I'm two minutes over so let's pray. Father, we do bow before you and we thank you for being a God that reveals yourself to us you do so because you love us. You do so because you want us to glean your wisdom. You do so because you want us to walk rightly with you. You desire a relationship with us. Father, when I get real honest with myself, I don't understand why you would want a relationship with me because I know who I am. Father, I thank you and I praise you and I will glorify and I will worship you for the fact that you do desire a relationship with me, with us as a people Father, thank you for Jesus that in his sacrifice you were glorified. And in being glorified, we have redemption through him. Father, I pray for each one that's here tonight. I pray that you bless them in a very real way. Father, I pray that you give, give them a great week. Father, I pray you bless each family and each home that's represented here tonight. Father, help us go from this place knowing that. Sometimes we're going to suffer. Sometimes we may understand, but always we can trust you. Thank you for loving us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things.